The subject for the evening talk is in the presence of something. Sometimes when we have, as we have here, an opportunity to at least temporarily put aside our various mental preoccupations, we observe with ourselves the remarkable degree of influence that our thinking realm has. And though it is obvious to us that our thoughts can't be disassociated from the rest of life and is connected to it, yet it seems that the streams of thoughts, the rhythms and flows of thought have a kind of uh, direction um, all of their own. And somewhere with the thoughts, of course, there's the equally the degrees and intensity of the content which, as it were, fills up those cells with pictures and words and images. And quite often, not always, but quite often, through those streams of thoughts, those patterns of thoughts, is the sense of I and me and myself and my life and where I am going. So we catch ourselves, we see ourselves engaged in streams of thinking. We see that quite often there is the I and the me, the my, involved in that thinking and it gives us a very, sh not real, but a very strong sense of going somewhere in life or sometimes when there is some confusion or conflict, not knowing where we are going in our life. In that there is this proliferation of ideas which takes place and the proliferation of it seems to be that we are going from one thing to another, one situation to another, one work, one study, one relationship or whatever. We then reinforce it with each other in uh, the world that we live in by talking to each other in this way. Much of the conversations and communications which we have with each other and the messages especially which come which say, yes, this is truth. This is how things are. We are human beings. Our thoughts are to be inherently believed in. We truly, ultimately, are really are going somewhere and if we didn't talk about that, we'd have nothing left to talk about. Sometimes the self and the uh, identification with it expands a little bit further and we talk about something which is close to us. We might talk about our loved ones, our parents, our, our family, and there's some expansion of the self to include a, a slightly larger area. Sometimes that expands further, sometimes, and possibly in recent days, what we have noticed is that we've been perhaps thinking about other situations, particularly global situations. And then we notice in the movement of our thinking and conversations, we notice that we have some identification to varying degrees with our country. And when I 
And uh, Henrietta and Eric and I arrived two weeks ago today at, uh, uh, in Massachusetts at the center there on the west coast. I, my opening comments at the uh, evening talk were that I found myself rather prone to wanting to talk about the Middle East crisis uh, rather than the Middle Way. And, and I think one notices the relationship that one has when self, the self of oneself and the thinking of the self of one's country, views in another, in relationship to another place. And I consider myself a uh, long time ago have, as having given up my uh, uh, nationality and just regard the little blue book that one has to show these uh, rather stiff-looking people at the immigration, uh, simply a, a little book, and have no interest nor appetite in the, in the contents of it. But one thing I noticed, and possibly may have as well, how the identification through the thinking and through the historical background of oneself has a remarkable degree of influence, particularly at the feeling and emotional level. And one of the ways that I noticed, noticed this is that some, uh, a BBC reporter went into a bar somewhere in the Middle East where there were a number of US uh, servicemen in there. And the reporter put out a microphone and he, and he said to them, uh, what, should, what should we do about this uh, situation with uh, Iraq and the overtaking of Kuwait and all of that? And there seemed to be almost a unanimous agreement amongst those uh, uh, soldiers in the bar. They said, uh, send in the Air Force, uh, bomb uh, Iraq, Baghdad, and finish with it once and for all, just like that. And one noticed and heard that, as others might too, with quite some degree of alarm. But the immediate feeling response and the thought which arose, well, what a, you know, a, a stupid thing to say. But one notices, if, for example, others from elsewhere said, if a Palestinian or a Iraqis or Iranian said, let's go in and bomb the White House, it could be taken with an intensity of alarm. One's on one, when one is viewing from one side, one can take things more lightly. What a stupid thing to say. One can hear it from the so-called other side and view it with incredible degree of fear and alarm. And I think in situations, where, wherever there are situations, the thinking and the feeling go together and how easily we produce conclusions. And even when we don't want to be identified with nationalism in any way, how easily the deep-rooted feeling says otherwise. Feelings, thoughts, the stream of it, the historical associations and identifications with a particular place contributing substantially to forming the position, the standpoint in the present.
I'm not saying right nor wrong with regard to this, but saying how easily, easily this occurs for us. Well, it means spending our day in a certain uh, quietitude and the movement of our thoughts and our I ideas and the vast display of knowledge and information which we have accumulated. I think we have to really address our pursuit of knowledge very, very seriously. I think we're in very real danger with our world of destroying our world not so much with our ignorance but with our cleverness and that we are becoming, as a group of people, too clever for our own good. And there's a thirst for knowledge and information. And this thirst seems like it's like an, in, an insatiable addiction. But because it's not treated as an addiction, simply because it keeps being affirmed to us again and again the value of more information about anything and everything. With that increasing degree of intensity in our corridors of learning, to feed the addiction for more knowledge. And our brain, I feel like concerned about, our brain is getting saturated with it and it's not yet socially, politically, economically or personally being treated as a very severe addiction. And the tradition, the spiritual tradition has said to us again and again, for thousands of years, that spirituality has to go hand in hand with renunciation. Without renunciation, one cannot speak of spirituality. And I feel that the expressions of renunciation are similar in ages gone by and today, but also change through the, the course of time. One aspect of our brain and our thoughts and the words and the ideas that we have. What kinds of knowledge and information am I prepared to sacrifice? What would I be willing to give up? So that when I sit and meditate, when I'm in the quiet moments of my being, when I am just walking on the face of the earth, when I am sitting and breathing, I don't have a feeling or an idea or a thought going on which seems to be really hassling me and preventing me just from sitting on the earth and breathing. That the very capacity just to be that I trust in that so implicitly that my brain responds to it immediately and goes quiet just by the sense of the breathing. What would one be prepared to give up to go into things more deeply? I think we're a very greedy culture. We want spirituality, we want to go deeply into things.
and we want to burden our, our brain with the excesses of knowledge and information. We want it always. And it just isn't possible, and I think sometimes we have very serious questions to ask ourselves about our brain and the way we are using it. When we look at the rhythms and of our thought, the streams, the currents, the tendencies, the, the reproduction of thinking, not only do we notice self identified with me, or self small family, or self nation, or further, not only do we notice that, but we also notice that with that, it seems very much tied up with our idea of traveling, as it were, through life from A to B. <coughs> I am here at this juncture in my life, and being at this juncture, I think about what I'm going to do next days, next month, next years, and then I think I'm going to move on to the next. I think this is emotional, psychological, mental imprisonment to believe that's all that it is for us. <coughs> Sometimes in the meditations, already in one, in one day, and we don't really need the meditation to uh, notice this with ourselves, that sometimes in the very day itself of sitting and being present in the situation, we've produced possibly more thoughts than there are leaves on the redwood forest. And it, as it were, it pours out of us. And sometimes in the pouring out of us, we begin to notice there's a thread to it. There's a kind of link-up which is going on. And if our day, I think, has, been, has some usefulness to it, you and I will have stopped at some point in our day and asked ourselves, what's all that thinking about? What's the content of that thinking? What's the issue? What's the storyline which I have created What's the history I am making from past and into future? And if we are, I think if we ask ourselves what the story is that we've made today, with real conviction, what's all that about? What's that whole scenario that we've pictured there and we've manufactured, which we think is very, very important? and we ask ourselves, what's all that about? Somehow one's hope is there'll be immediately a bit of space about it. No matter how big the imagination, how huge the story and the drama might be, one looks a little bit, even just at a few leaves of blades of grass, a little bit of the evening sun, the presence of the minds of others, just a little bit of perspective to get one little bit of personal history into focus. How much does that scenario, that picture that has been created, really, really matter? 
When we look at some of the work that you do, I do, we do, sometimes one can recall a moment, if you have the opportunity here to look back a little bit over your life, and I hope that you uh, find some time for that amidst the breath, that in the looking back over one's life, Sometimes we look back and we can remember, I can remember different moments in my life as sure as you can, that something occurred for us which marked a kind of turning point in our life. And that may have been an issue around us or whatever. It may have been the, uh, the birth of a, of a creative idea. It may, it may have been a sense coming from somewhere inside of ourselves, I really need to do this. So there's been an a, a, sometimes a spontaneous event, unplanned, unorganized, as it were, unthought out. We're just living our life, doing our day, doing our meditation, involved in our day-to-day -day experiences. And in all of that, something took place, some catalyst, some moment, some contact, some experience experience, and it moved us in such a way that the follow-up to this, this was the thoughts themselves helped to put the movement of that experience, that realization, that idea, that creative imagination or whatever, into the world. And so that we found that our life began to respond to that moment. And it can be from the so-called big scale of Gautama Siddhartha sitting under the tree and saying, the truths of life, what human beings are concerned with is suffering and its end. It, it can be from, uh, who another, another figure, Mother Teresa, as uh, she said to me uh, uh, years ago, sitting on, on a train from Calcutta to Darjeeling, working as a, a teacher in a school in Calcutta, and she's sitting on that train, and then she said, my God, I've been walking past the poorest of the poor for years in this city of Calcutta. How can I do this? And the change takes place. Not knowing where the inspiration came from, not really needing to name it, but a movement, and the movement then saying, right, let me put this into time and place. Let me put this into a situation which is valid and useful. But you know, sometimes we're not coming from awakening. We're not coming from realization. We're not coming from something coming through like that in a spontaneous and rather mystical way to take these kind of steps. Sometimes we're coming from the continuity of the streams of thought. We're coming from a place which society has said, you do this because this is good for you. We're coming from parents who have said, you do this because this is what you have to do. We're coming from educators who have said this. We're coming from our peers. We're coming from the people that who impress us. 
And I think if we're coming just on that stream, living just in the flow of time from one thing to another, I think somewhere or other we've missed something of wonder and significance. So th therefore I say for us, let's, in the uh, commitments to the here and now and to being in the presence of things, let's just find some time for some quiet reflections. And those quiet reflections which help to put some perspective of where our life is and if there are, and when they are, some of those inspirations which come from past which have helped to flow into the time-space situation. With the thinking world and, the, and the, the, the use of our brain and in the endeavor to find some space with regard to our uh, men mental world, sometimes I think we find ourselves in an incredible quandary. And we get told different messages one of the messages we get told is we have to make progress and develop. We keep being told, as a, I think a very extreme view of our life, if we keep doing more of what we're doing, if we keep working harder at what we're doing, if we keep acquiring more experiences or more knowledge, somehow or other, that will indicate to us we are making progress. And our culture, and therefore you and me, we are infatuated with progress. We are preoccupied, no evidence for it. And the idea of progress means I can get better and better from going from here to there. And it's such a strong idea, and this is the, 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 the hotbed. California is the hotbed of this idea. <laughs> that we keep in this mutual conspiracy reinforcing it with each other. And because of the idea of getting better, then we keep producing more variations on the same carton of milk, because we think it's an improvement. And it's just as it shows itself in the consumer world, it shows itself in our inner world. I'm not sure if living in the streams of the thinking, in the tendencies of getting better, is actually, actually making anybody any happier. Where is the evidence for it? For all those efforts, and all the struggle, and all the trying, and all the information, are we any happier for it? Honestly. 
And we know that somewhere inside of us, with all the ideas and all that we've done and are doing, somewhere inside of us, we know it's not making anybody any happier. And even when we work through time and space so diligently on a project, on an effort, on a meditation, we come to the end of it, are we any the happier for it? I think when we come to the end of something, honestly, I don't think it's happiness. I think it's sheer bloody relief. It's over. Whew. And this, oh, thank God that sitting's over. Thank God that job's over. Thank goodness that relationship is over. Thank good that <coughs> journey from A to B is over. It's relief. Happiness, where is it? Relief, sometimes. So sometimes we get the message, as one extreme, we have to do something, we have to work hard, we have to strive, we have to make a great deal of effort, and then we get somewhere. I think in any field of life, any field of life, it's worth having some reservation, not dismissing it totally, but some reservation about the blind adherence to this viewpoint. I think that reservation, that doubt in the, the identification with this viewpoint is a whisper of wisdom. And sometimes we swing with our thinking and with our beliefs right over to the other side. There's nothing you can do. It's hopeless, it's impossible. Nothing you do. All the efforts, all the work, all that, it's purely pointless. I think when that extreme view goes out to us as the other extreme view, I think it leads to despair unhappiness, confusion, helplessness, frustration, boredom. So what's the, the, what are these days all about? If on the one side, working, pushing hard seems to only lead to working, pushing hard, which only leads to working, pushing hard, with the occasional relief, mostly called sleep these days, and then it starts up again. And the other extreme view is the veining on, that one can't do anything. And somewhere, we're trying to discover some indefinable middle ground not born of those extremes. This is what these days are about. In our relating, with the streams and thoughts that come and make manifest, much of it is we look at it honestly and directly, it's a kind of perpetuation of the old. 
if it feels like feeling is important here, if your thinking feels like a perpetuation of the old, it's just more of what's gone by already, then our renunciation is to have no appetite for it, starve the brain of interest in it, because it's so obs obscuring. But, and very valuable about this, sometimes, despite the proliferation of thoughts, you know, reproducing at a phenomenal degree, that in spite of all that, sometimes something comes through the creative idea, the creative thought. Different in quality, different in sense from me and my life, me and my life, where am I going with my life, shall I continue in this, that kind of thinking. Something other comes through in the quietitude, in the midst of all the thinking, which has a kind of qualitative difference. We don't doesn't know what the source is, and I don't believe in uh, sources, apart from what they put on the kitchen table. But something comes through and enters, touches one in a certain kind of way. That idea, if it has some genuineness to it, let's make that idea, if one feels it's authentic, creative, valid for oneself and the world that we live in, let's make that express in the world. Let's reveal that, let's show that, let's generate it into the world. So it's not born of yesterday, yesteryear, and all the continuity. It just comes and hey, look at that. Let's be receptive to that. Let's, let's make it manifest in some way or other. And I think if you and I are in these days, in any day, really listening to ourselves, the creative idea, the imaginative perception, the world of potential and possibility, not born of efforting and striving, can really show itself to us. And in the showing of itself and in the expression, I would call this happiness. This is happiness in life. And we are sacrificing the majesty and the, the mystery of happiness for striving and relief and the consequences we see everywhere. So in our situation here and in the explorations which are, which are available to us, one hears, and I think anything which is repeated in life too much, easily becomes uh, rhetoric. And with rhetoric, I think it inhibits liberated creativity. And part of the rhetoric which one hears here, most unfortunately I'm as uh, guilty as, uh, oh, let's listen to the donkey far more 
liberating. That in our rhetoric which we use with some frequency is be here and now. Some of you, all, all but a dozen of you I, I, I understand from the list, have been in retreats before for varying lengths of time. So you'll have heard be here and now. There's remarkably successful books called Be Here and Now, variations on the, on the, on the theme, no disrespect to anybody, <laughs> I must just be careful. <laughs> and <laughs> and I want to say be here and now, be here and now, be here and now. Be mindful, be moment-to-moment -moment attention, be with the present moment, be with presence of whatever it might be. And certainly it's a valuable and grounding reminder to us. But my concern would, would be is if we attach importance, if we attach too much importance to being here and now in that strict, concentrated, mindful ways of those addictive meditators, if we do that, it's not going to be liberating, it's going to actually be obscuring. Because the preoccupation, and therefore the movement of addiction, will be to be here and now. I must get my here and now fix. And if I'm not here and now, if I'm not attached, I'm not getting that to me, moment by moment, something is wrong, and what am I going to do? with my meditation. So any object, including the object called breathing, including the object called here and now, including the presence of anything, can be very grounding contribution to peacefulness and calmness, the reduction of stress and settling in. But if we're not responding with wisdom, we'll just think in terms of being here and now. We'll think that's what meditation is. We'll sit here and we'll say, well, an enlightened person is always here and now, from moment to moment. Well, if that's enlightenment, I'm not interested. If that's it, to be a prisoner and tied to the here and now as a statement of enlightenment, it's a tragedy. What a restricted way to live. You know, do you imagine? Uh, uh, you know, uh, can you imagine living like that? This is, this is enlightenment. If one can't knock over a bowl of flowers in life, it's a great tragedy. So, yes, let's respond to the here and now situation. Let's be respectful and give care and attention to it. But let's not give it so much emphasis and such priority, it stops us, as it were, breathing in the deeper sense of breathing. It stops us feeling, it stops, it stops us spaciousness, because we've tied ourselves to a construction called the here and now. And then we've missed the whole point of the spiritual teachings. And then we've defined our spiritual teachings, not by awakening, 
not by inspiration or creativity, not by discovery and by happiness. We've, we've described or prescribed our uh, spiritual life through mindfulness, which is an extraordinarily tragic watering down of what spiritual life is all about. Last couple of days before I came, came here, uh, a dear friend who many of you know uh, uh, is uh, Joanna, Joanna Macy, and we were giving a two-day workshop in the uh, Redwoods at the Shinoa Retreat Center together. And in the two days that we were there, I was giving some uh, teachings, and we might say here and now teachings, and um, we might say I am. <laughs> and, uh, and Joanna, in her very uh, um, expensive way, was giving teachings and was referring to the, uh, the great dangers for our Earth of uh, radioactivity, radioactive waste, and how this radioactive waste will be with us for a quarter of a million years. And, that, and as the International Green Movement has said again and again and again, that the only thing that can be done with this radioactive waste is that it is stored on ground, on specially located sites, and it is watched. To bury it, to put it into the ocean, to fire it up into the uh, atmosphere is a, is a state of, uh, is an act of utter irresponsibility. We have generated this nightmare, and we have to live with it, and it has to be watched. And Joanna, in the um, two-day uh, workshop, there were some 60 of us uh, there, said, let's engage in an, 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 an enactment in which we look, as it were, if there is life, 200 years ahead, and these places, these nuclear power stations and other such facilities, become places of pilgrimage to see these sites and that there are guardians of these locations. And we opened out our time awareness, our, our creative imagination, to look beyond just ourselves, to see further, and to use the power of imagination to have the opportunity to, to do that. And I think such explorations truly are of, of, of value because they give us a, a reminder which can be forgotten if we too much tied to one idea, too much tied to one piece of rhetoric. And then the, there was a presentation of slides. And in this presentation of slides, what we observed, what we, the slides that which we shown were uh, mosques and ashrams and cathedrals and contemporary churches and uh, nuclear power stations and electricity uh, generating board stations and other facilities like that. And how, in looking at them from one to another, in the architecture, there's a certain kind of odd 
almost weird similarity as symbols of something large and, and wondrous and beyond our comprehension. And I think we have to, as I mentioned earlier, explore ways through the silence of things, which the self-preoccupations, so much concerned with my time, my day, my life and my direction, find ways, as Joanna is exploring and others of us are exploring, ways to open that out. And the silences and the the receptivities, a certain spaciousness with the here and now, gives some mystical opportunity for all of us. And it would be a great pity if we were to spend our, spend our life prisoners of cause and effect, prisoners of past, present and future, prisoners of this fixed life going in this direction. So our time here together, in a genuine way, I do feel, offers each one of us infinite opportunity to be quiet with each other, to be uh, receptive, to acknowledge the, the, the tendencies and the streams of thought with the self running through, and to listen rather fully and attentively. See what emerges out of, the, out of the absence of things, out of the absence of the conditioning. And to respond to it, to find the power inside of ourselves to really respond to the creative. And then, the meditations and the forms and the techniques, the mindfulnesses, the posture, the timetable, all of that will kind of fall into place rather effortlessly. Since we have awakening as the essential element. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings be awakened. So let's have two or three quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.